0: Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am your lead moderator for the group discussion today. My name is Dr. Jehan Marku, and as usual, I am joined by my favorite chemist and business partner, Dr. Nigam Aurora. How are you doing today, Nigam? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Excellent. Also joining us is David Valencourt from the GMP Collective and our resident quality control expert. Thanks for joining. Uh, What's new in your GMP world,
1: Dave? Oh, my God. Where to begin? Let's save the fun (laughs) for the podcast, shall we? It's it's good (laughs) to be here, though. Thank you.
0: And also joining (laughs) us is one of our long-term members of the podcast, Dr. Professor Sarah Jane Ward. Great to have you back on the show. And it was awesome to see you at the conference in Ireland.
2: Sure was. I I like seeing you on both continents in one month, (laughs) Jayhan. And it's good to see you, David. I've missed you.
1: Likewise. I was seriously so excited when I saw that our names were back together. It's been too long.
2: Together again. All right, I will stop singing.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, as you can tell, listener, we have a great show for you today. Uh, first up, we're going to play a game, and Nigam, you're going to host the game this time, or so you've told us. And you've been reading about all these different cannabis certificate and masters programs at universities and colleges, and you're going to test our knowledge of that landscape. And you know, uh, both Sarah and I have taught at universities, so I feel like we're ringers, but but we'll see. Um, And our second segment, no pressure, David. No pressure, David. Yeah. (laughs) And our second segment, we'll discuss an article about big pharma, the FDA, and how product approval pathways may be uh, lightening up or opening up. And third, our peer-reviewed article will be on the serotonin toxicity of serotonergic psychedelics, so things like LSD and psilocybin, and sort of comparing them to this syndrome or condition that's that's referred to as serotonin toxicity. Fascinating stuff. Okay, we'll be right back in 30 seconds with today's game. And we're back. Now it's time for today's game and I'm going to hand it off to
3: you, Dr. Aurora. Digum, take it away. Awesome. So I'm pretty excited for this game. Uh, There was an article came out recently in Leafly titled 120 of the best college courses, degrees and certifications for cannabis. So a little background. This article was written by Nadir Pearson. Uh, So Nadir is a cool guy. Him and I met uh, back when we were both working in Massachusetts several years ago in, in the cannabis industry there, and um, he's doing a lot of cool things in the industry. And I just thought it was awesome that he took the time to put this resource together and, and to get it published, um, so that you know folks looking for educational programs could you know see the the broad uh, spectrum of different uh, educational programs out there. And um, speaking of cool things. Uh, that Nadir has done. I wanted to shout out uh, smart. So Nadir founded this organization, student marijuana Alliance for research and transparency, which according to their website has a presence on 50 university campuses nationwide. And I know cannabis is becoming normalized and widely accepted, but it hasn't always been that way. And, and it definitely wasn't that way. You know, five years ago when I met Nadir and he had started this uh, organization. So, um, Anyways, uh, I just think this is kind of a, a, a cool topic, and I wanted to base the game on it. So, um, please, uh, game players, don't look up this article. Don't cheat. Um, just use just use what you know. Uh, and here's how the game's going to work. So, I've got three questions for each of um, our participants. So we'll, we'll go round robin, and just because this is how it is on my screen, I'll go Sarah, Dave, and then Jayhan. So it's a multiple choice question about a cannabis program or, or, uh, or course. And uh, I'll give you the question. I'll give you four universities or, or schools to choose from. And if you get it right, you get a point. And then at the end, um, we'll have everyone gets three. And then at the end, we'll have one question that everyone gets as sort of like a tiebreaker of sorts if we need it. So oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. So I'm going to start with Sarah. So Sarah, here's your question. What school offers both a minor featuring classes in psychology, sociology, and chemistry, as well as a complete bachelor of science degree in cannabis, biology, and chemistry? Is it Humboldt state university in Northern California, University of California, Santa Barbara in Southern California, Colorado State University, Pueblo. Or Portland State University. Hmm.
0: Those sound tough, Sarah.
2: All right. Well, <laughs> um, since I know folks from the Colorado State University of Pueblo, I'm just going to select that one because there's a lot of super cool people there. <laughs> That's my choice.
3: Looks like Sarah gets a point. But Well done, Sarah.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Colorado State University of Pueblo.
0: Nice. I thought it was going to be all the schools in California because, you know, they just, they love weed over there. So I figured they'd put it in everything, even the school curriculum.
3: So, Okay, Dave, here's your question. What school has a program that gives folks who complete it 400 hours of hands-on experience in state-of-the-art instrumentation labs? Is it Community College of Denver... University of Denver, Holyoke Community College in Western Mass, or City College of San Francisco?
1: Oh, man, you give Sarah the easy one. This isn't fair. Um, this is a good one. Uh, I really like whichever program this is. The hands-on experience uh, it seems like more analytical chemistry focus. 400 hours is a pretty good amount of time. Um, I feel like that could be a community college for sure, which I see these are pretty much all community or city colleges, uh, local colleges. I think the you know,
3: University of Denver is actually a private school, so you mm-hmm. might want to toss that one out. Okay, I'm going to toss Maybe. that one out. That,
1: um, <laughs> be, I'd be surprised. Uh, you know, Holyoke, I know, has made a pretty big renaissance with their programs and quite a few cannabis uh, businesses are focused there. So I'd like to think being an alum of the at least Massachusetts public school uh, higher education system. Ah, uh, I'm just gonna go with Holyoke. It's kind of a shot out there, but let's go with Holyoke.
3: Unfortunately, Dave, that is not correct. Oh, man. Um, I actually oh. threw I actually threw oh. Holyoke in there because I thought it would be like make it confusing. So it is. I want, I want to send that to the judges. I want that reviewed. <laughs> that I'm a ju- I'm jury judge and executioner today, buddy. Uh, <laughs> so okay the correct <laughs> the correct answer is uh, community college of Denver
1: yeah that was my second choice should have been my first
3: yeah I, I thought the Holyoke thing would 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 throw some people so Dave unfortunately you were the one who got thrown I took the bait yeah okay so as we continue um, let's go to Jay Hans. so yeah 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 let's go next question uh, what school offers a Cannabis Entrepreneurship Bachelor of Science. Is it Thomas Jefferson University in Pennsylvania, Johnson and Wales University in Rhode Island, Ohio State University, or University of Central Florida? Hmm. Well,
0: let's see. What school offers a cannabis entrepreneurship BS? Well, I mean, a lot of these programs have a lot of BS in them, <laughs> so it's it's so hard to choose. Um, Thomas Jefferson University, I know that they have a lot of interesting stuff. TJU, you know, I mean, I kind of want to go with that one because I know some of the instructors, but it feels, uh, I don't know, it feels like that one um, <laughs> is a uh, red herring. Um, Johnson and Wales University, I, to be honest, I didn't even know that was a real school. Um, then there's Ohio State University and University of Central Florida. So, Ohio has some decent advancements in cannabis. I know that they've been doing some stuff. I've taught uh, um, some stuff out there, some seminars. But UCSF, University of Central Florida, in my opinion, there's a lot of cannabis stuff going down there, lots of licenses. Um, I've been invited multiple times to speak at UCSF, I think at least twice. Um, So I'm going to go with UCSF, even though I'm not 100% sure they even have a cannabis program. But I feel like that would be a good bet my second choice would be TJU, but I'm going all in on Florida. La,
1: la, la,
3: la. Unfortunately, Jay Han, the um little known Johnson and Wales University in Rhode Island <laughs> is the correct <laughs> answer. Um. Wow. All right. Yeah. No, I, I learned a lot by reading this article. Jay
2: for the win. Yeah. All that's right. part
3: of the reason I wanted to shout out, you know, Nadir for putting all this together. I mean, th- this thing was extensive. Yeah. I mean, j- listeners check, Check out the show notes. This I mean, is it, it cool. is, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on with, with cannabis education these days. So yeah, I'm, I'm learning about new universities or universities I <laughs> didn't even know
0: existed <laughs> and cannabis programs. It's like a double whammy.
2: It's a hospitality. Oh, school. They, they focus on mm. my cousin went there. So it's restaurant and hotel hospitality was there. That makes sense. Focus.
1: Mm-hmm. When I worked in, uh, the restaurant industry in Rhode Island, when I was putting me through college, uh, yeah, there were quite a few Jaywoo kids coming out of the restaurants working in the chef as chefs. And oh.
3: yeah. Well, uh one uh one thing to clarify, all of these universities are real universities. There's there's no there's no like totally fake <laughs> schools in here. Just just okay. just for you, Jay Han. So okay, uh closing out <laughs> round one, um, I believe Sarah's the only one who got the point. So Sarah's in the lead, and let's go into round two. Sarah, here's your question. Uh, I thought this was an interesting one, a little different angle. Little Priest Tribal College is a public tribal land grant community college that is part of the American Indian Higher Education Consortium. The school has an Associates of Applied Science degree in cannabis studies. What state is this school in? Is it in Nebraska, North Dakota, Montana, or Washington? Washington.
2: Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> yeah, first of all, so cool, right? This is all of this information is just fascinating. Um, I'm going to go with Washington, although it's one of the lesser likely states that I associate with Native Americans, it's the state that I associate the most with cannabis. So I'm going to go with Washington.
3: Well, even though we do have a cast member, Amber Wise, who works on a testing lab on a uh, Native American reservation in Washington, unfortunately, (laughs) that is incorrect. And this very unique and cool school is in Nebraska.
0: People live in that's Nebraska. Awesome. Oh, that's a shocker.
3: Not only do they live there, <laughs> but they study cannabis on wow. um, public, tribal, land grant, community colleges. That's that's so, amazing.
2: Awesome.
3: I I thought I thought so. I I mean, like I said, the, the article was very rich uh, with information, and I I was just pulling stuff that I thought was particularly of interest. So, um, okay, uh, we're going to keep going as the HLI time is apparently ticking. So, um, on to David, your question is, uh, there are two schools that define their programs as their cannabis programs under the umbrella of medicinal plant chemistry. The one that I was already familiar with was out of Northern Michigan University, and they had the claim of being the first in the nation to to have that program, but reading this article um, I learned about another university that has a program under the same umbrella uh, of medicinal plant chemistry for cannabis. Is it University of Denver, Minot State University, Portland State University, or Arizona State
1: University? Hmm. So I want to say I don't know if you're going to set me up. You're setting me up again. I. I don't think it's University of Denver. Um, I also don't think it's Portland State University. It doesn't add up to me that Arizona State, um, having worked and gotten my advanced degree and in, in the state of Arizona from NAU, I just it doesn't add up that uh I, I'm not aware of research going on down there at that level that would put together a medicinal plant chemistry program. I actually think. And, and I've seen this article, it's been a while now, but I want to say I saw something about Minot State and it kind of blew my mind, uh, or Minot. I actually never knew how to pronounce that, but that's up in uh, North Dakota, right? So um, let's go there.
3: All right. Congratulations, Dave. You got one right. All right. Awesome. And oh, a little tidbit I forgot to mention. I thought this was cool. Um, it said in the article, and I quote, that at Northern Michigan university, they have med plant chem club where students collab beyond the classroom. So I don't know what that means, but it was in the article and I've now read it. So <laughs> let's continue with our game. Uh, Jay Han is up next and and Han, just so you know, everyone else has a point,
2: <laughs> no pressure,
3: no pressure. So uh, as a follow-up of sorts to the prior question, which school has a bachelor of science degree specifically in cannabinoid chemistry? Is it York College of Pennsylvania, University of Toronto, University of Sydney, or Western Illinois University? Ooh, those those are tough choices. Um, I'm I don't
0: know if York you know York College in Pennsylvania is, is a great school. It's like I think it's in the top 100 in, in the nation, but I don't know if they're known for their analytical chemistry. Um, Western Illinois—that sounds like a, a technical name for a school. I don't know. It seems very like that might be a good place to do chemistry. Um, university of Toronto. What don't they do up there? They got federal legalization. Um, let's see. Uh, and then there's University of Sydney. Well, you know, I know they do a lot of cannabis research out in Australia. It's that that university, right, in Australia, Nigam?
3: Yeah, yeah. It's it's that one with the Lambert Center and all the cool research comes out of it. It's that one. Wow, I want it to be that one. So I'm going to go with what I want. It's not about the points. It's about
0: trying to wish for the future I want. And I really hope that the University of Sydney offers a uh, cannabinoid chemistry degree because they certainly have the talent for it over there.
3: You know, while I agree with you about the talent and the cool stuff happening at University of Sydney, um, interestingly, the answer is York College of Pennsylvania.
2: <laughs> oh,
3: wow. Oh incredible and In-
2: oh my goodness I'm embarrassed <laughs> yeah. not to know and that t- well
3: Sarah a- nobody knew until you just told us so.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean duh Jay Han <laughs> yeah exactly. there we go. I mean
0: I knew York was a good school I didn't know it was also cool I mean that that's that's great to learn I mean that is a that is a great school it's nice to see a really good school like have these programs like that's great
3: and to, to further clarify, I did not assign these questions ahead of time. I just literally picked the order based on what I'm seeing on, on my screen, how it came up on our on our session here. So it's just totally random that Dave got the mass question and he grew up there and that Jehan's getting the cannabinoid chemistry question when he studied <laughs> specifically cannabinoids in his graduate program. So it's, it's all kind of just happening.
0: And I did absolutely um, no prep work to get ready for this game. <laughs>
3: So. No, nobody nobody did um except for me and nadir who um right. wrote the whole article so <laughs> anyways um okay so uh last round um going to sarah so i think uh sarah and dave have a point jehan's lagging here we go third round a question near and dear to the core of this podcast what university hosts the master's level program that focuses on advanced cannabis topics, including pharmacokinetics, physiological effects, and anatomical mechanisms. Is it UCLA, UCSD, University of Hawaii, or Pacifica College of Health and Science?
2: I'm going to say Jefferson.
3: Wait. That's (laughs) That's <laughs> not. Are
0: you going to She got has a write in candidate. So <laughs> You can say whatever you want. It's probably going to be wrong. <laughs> I, I second that, that, that all choice. Right.
2: <laughs> 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 all right. All um, right. I am between UCLA and UCSD only, again, because I have friends that do cannabinoid research at both of those places. Um,. I am going to go with UCSD.
3: Well, unfortunately, Sarah, the answer is, and, and excuse, I, I kind of knew I messed this up Pacific College of Health and Science, not Pacifica. Um, yeah, wow. so I don't know where that is or what that is, but apparently. They have this program. I, I, I so, actually
0: knew the answer to this question because Pacific uh, College was the first one in the nation to offer the master's uh, program, mm. not just a certificate, but a master's program. And I talked to mm. one of their educators. So I was like,
3: I was like, ah, I missed my chance to get a point here. <laughs> I guess uh, University of Maryland yeah. really got the shine on that. They got the publicity for the master's program, at least in in my purview. But uh. That's cool. Jayhan that you had heard about this ahead of time. And um, just for the sake of HLI time, uh, I'm going to keep it running for uh, Dave. Here is your question. Which school has an interdisciplinary minor in cannabis and culture, which includes anthropological approach to cannabis? Is it Colorado State University Pueblo? UC Berkeley? Western Illinois University? Or Ohio State University.
1: Isn't that, um, yeah, I wanna say that it's UC, uh, Colorado State Pueblo. Um, aren't they the ones that are just kicking butt with all the amazing programs that Sarah pointed out earlier?
3: Unfortunately, it is Western Illinois University. Wow. Oh, go. Yeah, go so. Western Illinois. Shout out to the Midwest for uh, teaching young people about cannabis culture, I guess. Yeah. I would like to audit that class and give my opinion. So, yeah. So.
2: <laughs> it sounded so Berkeley. That's yeah, I, I did. I was thinking yeah, culture
3: <laughs> anthropology. <laughs> Those
0: are Berkeley words. I actually, yeah, seriously.
3: That is I actually had a lot of fun, like putting in the ringer answers last night because I was like, oh, how can I, how can I fool my friends about cannabis programs? Jayhan, here's your chance to pick up a point before we go to the 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 last question that everyone gets. So, for Jayhan, um. Which school offers a course, to clarify, not a program, just a course, specifically on cannabis journalism? Is it University of Denver, Northwestern University, University of Southern California, or UT Texas at Austin? What what is uh, UT
0: Texas? Is that a technical university or
3: Oh, it's a uni- it's University of Texas. It's just oh. like UC uh,
0: uh in California, uh, but it's
3: like UT is like University gotcha. of Texas.
0: So, let's see. Yeah. University of Denver, Northwestern University, University of Denver, Northwestern University, University of Southern California. Hmm. Yeah. Ca- writing about cannabis seems like a very Southern California thing to do, if I'm to be honest. When I think of Doing cannabis journalism, I'm not thinking about doing it at the University of Texas in Austin. I'm not thinking, you know, Northwestern University. Although Northwestern has some cool programs, I'm going to go with the University of Southern California. USC just seems like a great activity for Southern California.
3: So, while conceptually I agree with you, and while USC is ranked as the top school for journalism,
0: <laughs>
3: the answer to this question is University of Denver. Hmm. So, um, unfortunately, Jehan, you're going into the final round. Well, wait, hold pointless. on. Is it, isn't
0: every class that's, uh, can be a cannabis journalism class. If you just submit every assignment on cannabis, <laughs> uh,
3: uh, you're welcome to contest the, uh, results of the election. Uh, no, I don't want to mess up fact. my perfect score. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So, Final question I'm pasting into the box so everyone gets to answer this and everyone gets a chance to pick up a point. So last question, what school offers a course entitled pulmonary dynamics of vaporizing and smoking? Is it University of Toronto Community College of Denver University of Sydney or University of Nevada, Las Vegas? Uh, we'll start with Sarah.
2: Oh my! I know.
3: Goodness. I thought this was so unique. Wow! It's like <laughs> dynamics of vaporizing hmm. and smoking specifically.
0: Is is, is it a
3: how to class or like like a science class? <laughs>
2: That's like, what I'm trying to figure today, out. Today, class, we're going
0: to show you how to assemble and use a dab rig. Like, what is? Um, I'm very curious. So, I want to see the syllabus. Like, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm going. Uh, University of Sydney. Oh, I'm not supposed no, to say that. No, you out are. Loud. You are. It's fine. Yeah, it's that's fine. my that's so, my choice.
3: Okay, so Sarah has lodged her choice. Uh Dave, what say
1: ye? Uh, I was gonna go with University of Sydney as well. Um yeah, let's throw that out there.
3: Uh, hmm. Mm-hmm. Jehan, it's your last chance to pick up a point.
0: I don't know. This this seems like something they do in, in Canada, not Australia. I just for some reason. So I want to give a shout out to the university of Toronto. I believe in you that you would have a class like this.
3: Okay. Um, is that everyone's final answer?
0: I'm back. No, it's, it's, I'm all in on, on our, on our brothers to the North.
3: (coughs) (laughs) All righty. So unfortunately everyone gets this one wrong. The answer is university of Nevada, Las Vegas has a class pulmonary dynamics of vaporizing and smoking as it relates to cannabis. So, wow. to wrap up our game, we have uh two people sharing the title, uh Dave and Sarah. You'll have to raise a trophy together. Congratulations. It's beautiful.
2: Awesome. It's a it's a great reunion victory, right, David?
3: <laughs>
0: well, um, honored to have the
1: tie.
3: Well, Jayhan. uh Thanks for uh, passing the mic. Uh, I'm going to pass it back um, so we can talk about some other topics. Oh, it's my pleasure, Nick. It was a fascinating game.
0: It really got my brain thinking, and I, I realized I was only familiar with like half a dozen programs. Not like I mean, 120. I feel like it's like every day there's another hundred things to learn about cannabis in, in the world. So that was great eye opener. So. Thank you. Well, listener, I hope you enjoyed uh, that little romp through cannabis education. So we'll take a quick break and come back with a short discussion about an article having to do with Big Pharma and the FDA.
2: everyone. My name is Katie Browell. I am co-founder and COO at Puff Creative, an award-winning community-focused cannabis marketing agency. Are you looking for a team of creatives to help spark your brand's vision? You can email me at katie at puffcreative.com. That's P-U-F-C-R-E-A-T-I-V.com. You can also check out our website, puffcreative.com, to learn more about our services. Thank you and stay creative.
0: And we're back. Now it's time to peruse the popular literature exploring business and politics and regulations. Welcome to the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show. And away we go. A recent article that's been making the rounds on MJ Biz Daily uh, shared news about the FDA being asked to chip away at cannabinoid regulations uh, by Johnson & Johnson at a cannabis meeting. So over the last few years, um, I know, David, you're probably familiar with these. The FDA has held various public hearings for public commentary on cannabinoids, cannabidiol, and they've also had various internal meetings regarding cannabis and hemp. In their latest event, the agency wrestled with a day-long meeting on scientific challenges with research related to cannabis and hemp. And You know, they they, these meetings usually like experts from all over come and share their experiences, their views, their contributory knowledge. Um, Sometimes you have patients who use cannabis speaking, and they speak to influence um, you know people's decisions on on health research. Academic researchers bemoan the daunting paperwork and regulatory hurdles. Usually, that's my experience, and you know they they also want to have access to a substance that can be purchased uh, very easily by the majority of Americans. But wait, what made this recent hearing unique is that it wasn't medical cannabis advocates. It wasn't cannabis advocates. It wasn't lobbyists. It wasn't um, academics. It It was a big pharma company. In fact, one of the biggest big pharma companies. The pharma company that put the big in big pharma commented on the need for the FDA to loosen these research roadblocks. And I think that this um, statement is interesting because it feels as though we don't often see traditional pharma companies represented in this cannabis discussion. We've seen the beverage industry come in. Tobacco companies really kind of already in the cannabis space. Look at all the vaporizers and those e-cigarette devices, the snack food industry. Now big farmers coming in. Um, and I think this is very, very interesting. And um, a couple of years ago, Johnson & Johnson actually purchased a, a cannabis company that they're doing R&D with in, in Canada or partnered with them. Um, I don't think purchasing is the right word, but David... I wanted, I wanted to start with you to kick things off because the uh, FDA Deputy Commissioner, Janet Woodcock, also chair of the administration's newly formed Cannabis Product Council, stressed that she would, um, you know, be hoping to determine a specific regulatory pathway, how it um, might be able to appropriately reg- regulate cannabis. Um, and, and one of the questions, uh, this is a quote from her, and I kind of wanted to get your response to this article and and to her quote here. Uh, But uh, Janet Woodcock said, one of the questions that they've been doing research on and struggling with is, could CBD meet the safety standards as an ingredient in food and dietary supplements? And when I thought about safety standards, ingredients, food, dietary supplements, I'm like, GMP Dave, that's who we should ask about this. So, is, is the FDA waiting for something like ASTM standards to move on cannabis and hemp? What, what's your response to this article?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, first, I've got to say I was a little disappointed when they put the announcement of the date of this hearing being, I want to say it was June 7th or June 12th, 14th. And it happened to be during our first ASTM in-person meeting in almost in two years, thanks to COVID, uh, for Cannabis Committee uh, D37. Uh, I know several folks that were listening into the hearing during, uh, you know, kind of having their foot in both, both uh, doors Um, and, you know, kind of to your point, you know, let me, let's recognize that there are several products out there that are both drugs and, uh, you know, active ingredients or otherwise, and are also found in food, you know, whether it's caffeine uh, vitamin C, you know, there's several, there's several of those and that. So that pathway exists and it's exciting to see the FDA. I know folks that were more intimately listening were kind of surprised in a way to recognize how much the FDA is, a how much knowledge they have at this point. I mean, they're, they're always listening. They're, They're trying to figure things out internally. And you mentioned the Cannabis Products Council that, and I'm excited that, you know, former commissioner Janet Woodcock now as a principal deputy is leading this group uh, in their newest iteration um, because they have to figure out a pathway. That's a really viable pathway to provide, you know, the requirements, the specifications of what safe is. And I think going back to the dietary versus safe pharma side, there's a different level of evidence that's required, you know, for, for regulatory pathway on a drug first, it goes back to structure function claims, you know, treatment diagnoses and cures. And it looks at a benefit risk model versus more reasonable certainty of the safety of the product. So I think that the key thing there, right, just goes back to safety. And there is um, frameworks for how this is done. It's just getting the data organized. And I I know other companies have, have submitted things before and have not, you know, been successful, but, there's a. I'm increasingly optimistic the FDA is starting to turn a corner.
0: Excellent, Dave. You know your responses always reach the highest standards of podcasting, uh, so thank you, um, Sarah. You know you have spent a career navigating um, research on essentially you know drugs, a lot of Schedule One substances. You know, I kind of like to get your reactions to the article. Is this just like more of the stuff that just sort of blows by your lab? Doesn't affect the day to day stuff? Or are you like this is exciting? We got to plan some studies for this. Like uh, new pathways opening. Just sort of, um, you know, what what does this article bring to mind?
2: Yeah, well, I will. Um, I, I don't have the direct quote, but one of the most disturbing quotes from the article was um, someone saying to the effect of there's so much information or misinformation out there about CBD and Nobody knows where to turn for trusted information. And, you know, as a basic scientist studying CBD, I was a little offended by that question. I think it's obvious where to turn for trusted information. But yeah, um, we just
0: look in the mirror, right? It's easy. (laughs) (laughs) Great point, Sarah, though. Yeah.
2: I know. I think it's exciting. I think it's exciting for the reasons you pointed out that that the motivators of this meeting are are someone like johnson and johnson that that opens a whole new list of of questions for me about what's going on there i think that's really interesting um, and I think, as I've mentioned before on this show, I mean, when I started doing CBD research over a decade ago, it was a Schedule One drug. I already had my Schedule One license because I do substance abuse research, so it wasn't difficult for me to use my Schedule One license to obtain CBD for animal studies. But now I can order CBD through, you know, scientific chemical companies without using my Schedule One license if the CBD is Hemp derived. We've just turned to doing studies on CBG in the lab, and the same thing we could obtain, you know, hemp derived CBG. So it has made uh, my paperwork a lot lighter uh, for the research I do. It definitely has impacted animal research. But I can tell you, um, you know, even with human research, it is still such a major obstacle to try to navigate through all these different. Uh, regulatory hurdles with CBD. I have a collaborator who recently um, sort of said to me, "You know, I've been been doing some small pilot studies in humans with CBD, and I give up. This is too difficult to try to figure out where to source CBD from that you know will meet the requirements of of running these human studies." I have another group that I just submitted a grant with this week to look at CBD um, for the treatment of uh, chemotherapy, neuropathic pain. And the hardest part of writing that grant was, again, to source CBD and to try to figure out all of the documentation and all of the issues that that may happen around that. So it's still, you know, with, with cannabis for sure, but even for things like CBD, there are still major Obstacles in the way of of conducting human studies.
0: Absolutely, I, you know those roadblocks are there. The paperwork is there. Some people great at paperwork can submit it and and really engage in the bu- bureaucracy. You know, uh, but but I think with other, it depends on your situation and what you're doing. It can be quite. Um, it, it is i think that's why johnson if, if a big pharma company' is like this is too much paperwork and they're the ones submitting like truckfuls of data on clinical studies i mean yeah let, let's pay attention to that and i also and nigam this is going to be related to the question for you like what you said about where do you turn for trusted advice where are the right experts and you know, it's so weird to live in this day and age where people are like what does that cannabis researcher know? They've just been studying it for 20 years. According to my internet research, uh, CBD is just like THC. In fact, it can be used at all ages in any amount. and has no side effects whatsoever. And you're like, well, I actually used it in the lab and I saw these effects. But like, yeah, that's a laboratory. You can't trust that. What if science know? So I always feel like there's this weird thing where like the people actually contributing to the field, people who are developing regulations, generating the data, you know, it, it kind of feels like uh, that's not as important as what can be found by an anonymous blog post on <laughs> the Internet um, or a social media post. And, and you know, Nigam, I think like when you when you see these things about expertise, about these types of federal movements, you know, I want to know kind of how does this tie into consulting um, and looking for experts because I know that both of us um, doing our consulting work sometimes we turn to other experts. Sometimes we are the experts. Sometimes we have to go to GMP Dave and ask him about standards for for hemp operations and things like that. So I think you know even we look for experts. So I was just wondering, you know, as a as a consultant in the space, um, you know, what does the story bring up for you?
3: Yeah, I have a lot to say, so I'll try to be brief. Um, I think that I, I I totally agree with the point you're making Jehan, that there's such a variety of experts I personally am a big believer in um if you don't know ask if you're not the expert find an expert so um I'll just highlight like a few areas uh and, and speak a little bit to uh you know some of the stuff that, that you and I've done at our firm Marco and Aurora so for example uh, when it comes to, pharmacology, uh, safety, um, and, uh, you know, some potential, uh, effects or, um, uses that may or may not be appropriate in certain amounts, those kind of things that are related to the fundamental science. So we're the experts in those areas and that's great. And, and we, uh, have done some important work in those areas, um, with, uh, what I would consider to be uh, clients doing, uh, you know, things at scale in the industry. So, so I think that has been meaningful and and I've been happy to contribute in that way. Um, but I love what you're saying. There's all kinds of other, uh, experts. There's legal experts. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of attorneys on the show who I'm sure would have volumes to speak about CBD. I know, uh, Rod Kite, uh, is constantly dealing with, um, shifting CBD regulations for his clients. Oh, uh, we have, you know, experts in academia such as Sarah, who, um, it just really pains me like you're, I mean, you were saying it in jest Jahan, but it really pains me when people just disregard the real experts. And if you want to know things about how CBD or other minor cannabinoids are working, uh, in mammalian systems for certain conditions. I challenge you to find someone better than Sarah in her lab to speak to those things. Right. So, um, that's important. And then there's, you know, as you were saying, you can go into all kinds of other angles, uh, the manufacturer, the GMP, like the stuff that Dave deals with, um, the, uh, there's even further layers about, you know, the States have put all this energy into their own, uh, regulation of cannabinoids across, well, some states have not, but a lot like California, like New York, like Massachusetts, they already have all these regulations for different types of cannabinoids. Um, and I'm so curious to see how the fed is going to come in and either respect that or disregard that so on and so forth. So, um, one other thing that I wanted to bring up, uh, and Jehan, you had posted the primary article and you had shared some additional, Resources. Um, I'm really curious uh, in a moment what you're that you you had shared this uh, article about the CHS research. I'm I'm just curious what your thoughts were on that. But before jumping in, I I wanted to just uh, say you had shared this other article from um oh, what site is it from? It's by Allison Martin. It was is from a different site and uh, it's it's taking talking about the same topic from a different angle and. It had brought up some things that one of them is what Dave said. And there's a quote here uh, grass is a fairly high bar. These products need to account for lifetime consumption by the general population and typically don't depend on special labels that indicate that something shouldn't or someone shouldn't consume that product if they have a specific condition. The proposed use of substance in food. Um, this person said can be considered safe if the estimated daily intake is less than the acceptable acceptable daily intake. So that speaks to what Dave was saying about like vitamin C, caffeine. I think that's such an important point. So that yes, we should study and we should understand this, but we shouldn't treat it like something that's hugely toxic or, or completely unknown. And uh the other thing I thought was great about this article is they were talking about how in other countries they have some regulation. So they're saying, um, you know, in some countries they're talking about New Zealand, Australia, Canada, they have a way that they treat it. They'll either treat it as a medicine. You can only get it from a pharmacy or they'll treat it as, you know, um, some certain regulation, but it's, it's not nebulous. It's not unknown. There's not so much gray area stuff going on because they've made a decision and they've moved forward with that decision. So, okay. Uh, sorry for long winded response.
0: Oh no, it's it's great, absolutely, and you know just that other article I threw in there. I know we're, we're running short on this section, so I just want to touch upon it. Um, if if you all haven't checked out the article entitled "The Feud Between a Weed Influencer and Scientist Over Puking Stoners" by Amanda Chicago Lewis, I think this really, uh, for me, highlights the need for the FDA to help open up restrictions because scientists go around spending money out of their own pocket, like let's see what i have in my checking account to fund research and i've been doing that for off and on for years too like some of my you know social media research and other stuff it's all self-funded and i can't imagine having someone go on social media or like start a campaign to derail research into effects of cannabis and that's basically what happened and and i think it's for me it's like it's so interesting that that could happen but again we're talking about outside of really um you know, federally approved or FDA approved type studies that might be done with a not as like a publicly sourced, like a Kickstarter type of research study, and and I think that, um, you know, I, I, this gets back to me is this this weird distrust of science and a distrust of rumor and suspicion, especially if the rumors come from small children. I mean, that's where I get my news. I was just talking to a child the other <laughs> night and I'd be like, "What's going on? What's the word on the street? Any health advice?" And you know, but Um, but so I think like we have to remember that the FDA's job is approving and reviewing what we submit to them. And so if they think cannabis stinks, it's because they got stinky data. I mean, that's, I think really in essence. Um, so I think there needs to be more education in this space, but if you want to see an idea of what can go wrong and awry with miscommunication and mistrust, um, check out this article we'll, we'll post in the show notes by Amanda Chicago Lewis, one of the great journalists in the cannabis space. And I hope she Teaches uh, that journalism course you brought up, Biggum, in <laughs> segment one. <laughs> but oh yeah, yeah. So if I don't know if you guys have any final comments, any questions you'd love to ask the FDA, if you want to throw in one more thing before we go off, uh, Dave. Anything you'd want to, you know, you you mentioned that the FDA was competing with your event, hosting it rudely on the same day as the ASTM meeting. Um, you know, if you could have been there at the hearing, was there is there a short statement you would have want to made as a as a GMP guy?
1: Yeah, I mean, so first, yeah, come on. Next time, these meetings are scheduled two years in advance, so they should have known better. Um, but in all, in all seriousness, you know, and just I've barely started scrape script service on the latest uh, bill uh, from the Senate, from uh, Schumer and team. They do reference good manufacturing practices. And I think what's more important is that we have to recognize there's going to be a unique regulatory pathway. It's not going to be all that different. But if you just start following the kind of exclusion process and you say, you know, we're not making claims, you're not, we're not looking at structure function claims. It, it's similar to how the dietary supplement industry went in the nineties and how that got formed. There was a unique cargo because it didn't fit a drug and it wasn't a food. So we have to think about what is it not and how does it apply? You know, there's a botanical process and ASTM's po- folks are bringing the standards forward. There's... A lot of big companies there and really bright scientists and technical folks, Jehan, you're one of them, of the 1,200 people across you know, 35 countries that can develop these consensus standards that allow data to inform you know, regulatory pathways. Um, so I think we just need to keep pushing forward and define what SAFE is and how to evaluate that and, and not just get caught up in just the drug box, but use the drug data and the basic research data.
0: I like that. Don't get caught up in the drug box. Use the drug <laughs> data. Yeah. And so, you know, to, just to kind of put a cap on this segment, you know, there are a lot of forces out there, factors affecting the, the future of cannabis. These include industries like food and beverage. They include the commodities, alcohol, tobacco, as well as big pharma. And as we've been shown recently by the article we just mentioned, social media and the public can have a tremendous impact on what research gets done or not done, not conducted. All right, we'll be right back after a short break with our final segment, the peer-reviewed portion of the show, Rapid Fire Science. Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, Look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal. And we're back. Now it's time for the peer-reviewed portion of the show. And away we go. For this episode's peer-reviewed publication, we will discuss an article entitled Serotonin Toxicity of Serotonergic Psychedelics. So in recent years... Psychedelic substances, if you've been paying attention, with, with serotonergic mechanisms like LSD and psilocybin have been accumulating a lot of evidence that they may provide therapeutic benefits for people suffering with different psychiatric symptoms. You know, we've seen stuff about um, drug drug addiction, drug abuse. We've seen um, stress, uh, depression, anxiety, um, and, and a lot of disease disorders targeted by psychedelic assisted therapies are managed with serotonergic drugs. Um And typically, you know, we talk about, like, depression, people sometimes looking at psychedelics, sometimes they're looking at SSRIs, as we discussed on a previous show, serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors. So, you know, we have to evaluate the risks of these drugs because they're in a similar class. Um, And so, you know, this article makes a number of interesting points. But before we we start to dive into those key points of the article, Sarah... um, I was wondering if you could help us out with some fundamental science here. You know, again, remind us what is serotonin and why do we care about having too much or too little? And and maybe what well, what is toxicity <laughs> as well? Because I sure. think when, when people hear toxicity, they're thinking like, am I melting and turning into a pile of sludge? Like, like you know, so,
2: um, yeah. All right. Awesome. Yeah. You know how much I... Like talking about serotonin, so thank you for choosing this article, Jahan. Uh, yeah, so a sort of, sort of, you know, a basic primer on what serotonin does in the brain. Um, so you know, we have billions of brain cells in the brain, and these brain cells talk to one another by one cell releases a chemical, and that chemical sticks onto the cell. Right next to it. So serotonin is one of these chemicals that one cell can release, and the chemical floats over a very, very short distance and it sticks on to the next cell. So a couple of different, you know, things have to happen, right? The serotonin has to get released from one cell, it has to be able to stick to and activate the other cell, and then it needs to go away. And brain cells use two different ways of getting rid of the chemical so that the serotonin doesn't stick around for a long time and do too much of its job. So the first cell that releases the serotonin can take it back up or recycle it. Or the serotonin can get broken down or chopped into smaller pieces while it's hanging out between the two cells. So there are two really common ways in which the brain gets rid of these chemicals after they're released from one cell and stuck onto another. So SSRIs essentially block the ability of cell number one to take serotonin back in. And so if you take an SSRI, theoretically, you should have more serotonin hanging around because serotonin can't get sucked back up into cell number one. There are other types of antidepressants called MAOIs. And what they do is they prevent the chopping up of the serotonin in the space in between the two cells. Same sort of net result. You have more serotonin hanging out because it wasn't able to get chopped up. Um, and so the reason why those cells have these two mechanisms is so that they you don't accumulate too much serotonin hanging out. And if in rare instances you have way too much serotonin hanging out that didn't get taken back up into a cell or chopped up into smaller pieces, you can have serotonin toxicity or what sometimes is called serotonin syndrome. And that can range from really mild Symptoms like a mild increase in body temperature, um, body dryness, dry mouth, dry eyes, a little bit of sort of mental confusion, all the way up to full-blown serotonin toxicity uh, where you can have cardiovascular effects, respiratory effects, seizure, coma, and in extreme rare instances, death. And really the, the most severe Um, examples of serotonin syndrome are seen when you're mixing a few different chemicals that are all acting on the serotonin system. So as I mentioned, SSRIs affect serotonin one way, other antidepressants affect serotonin another way, and our psychedelic drugs can affect serotonin in their own ways. So MDMA is a drug that causes cells to spit out more serotonin. Psilocybin is a drug that mimics serotonin by sticking on those cells like serotonin does. So it's really the combination of using drugs that have sort of multiple ways of altering the serotonin system is what can lead to more uh, significant chance of developing serotonin syndrome.
0: Fascinating, um, Sarah. I, I if you know if there were podcast awards for best responses to rambling questions, I believe you should be nominated. <laughs> <With> rambling
2: <laughs> answers. <Yeah. laughs>
0: that was that, that was fantastic. I try. I mean, um <laughs> it was a, it was a great description, you know, and I kind of visualize our our cells as either like putting the serotonin out on the curb to be recycled or like composting it. And I was like, I I I thought it was really um, fascinating, and and you know it kind of made me think when you're talking about mixing all these medications like that do have serotonin activity. I'm like ah maybe that's why it's bad to mix different types of alcohols like tequila with scotch with rum and vermouth. Like you know (laughs) you put it all in there, you get a hangover. That's my analogy for uh, serotonin syndrome or what they call in this article serotonin toxicity. And just to clarify, there isn't like a, a clinical test for this. This is a right so this is an observation of of behavior or response to a change from using drugs right it's not
2: correct yeah and it can look really similar to um anticholinergic toxicity if people if anybody remembers from a pharmacology class learning like the mnemonics of um <laughs> anticholinergic toxicity i think it's like Uh, mad as a hatter, red as a beet, hot as a hare. I just remember teaching those (laughs) mnemonics. Uh, So it can mimic other toxicities. And so it's deduced by a combination of the, you know, milieu of symptoms that you're expressing as well as, you know, what drugs are you taking?
0: Yeah, I like that. And there's only so many things your body ca- can't express, right? A increase in temperature, decrease in temperature, right? They're, they're, so, I, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I thought that was a, that's fascinating stuff. So, all right, so so plowing ahead, uh, Dr. Aurora uh, Niggum, um, I know that you normally like clinical papers with things like N numbers and stuff like this. And this is more of a review article looking at case reports in clinical studies, and i definitely wanted to get sort of uh, you know what your thoughts are from a high level or an overview of the article um if you like the conclusions in the article is there something in here that, that you think is important for companies to consider in the psychedelic space um it'd just be great to get your uh, assessment of this article
3: definitely and um yeah so just like a little background for the listener um Jehan and I had actually been going back and forth on a few articles and we landed on this one just because we thought it was a really interesting topic. Uh, clearly, as Sarah is giving us the background, there, there's a lot going on and uh, I, I'm going to relate it, Jehan, as you're asking to at the end of my statement, some things going on in the in the industry currently. So um just thought it was an important topic that's not spoken about that frequently i think um you know it's kind of funny let me say something and you guys tell me if you think it's real or not there's this thing that they uh like in the news they say that like negativity sells right so that's why when you read the news it's all about you know famine war environmental destruction the news isn't like about fluffy good things happening right so but i think in the psychedelic space to some degree it's it's almost the opposite i feel like it's um everyone Wants to be part of you know the the psychedelics renaissance and in, in medicine, uh psychedelics-based medicine, improving, you know, mental health globally and all this stuff, which I think all that that stuff is great, but there's also the realities of the pharmacology and of um, you know, drug-drug interactions and and uh in the mechanisms that Sarah was explaining to us. So okay, that that's enough background. I'll I'll dig into um what you're asking, Jahan. So, very high level on the paper. Um, Sarah teed it up so well, so I won't spend too much time. Essentially, um, there's different drugs that manipulate uh, the levels of serotonin um, in different ways, and there are some combinations that have more risk than others. So I'm just going to read really just directly from this paper. And I encourage everyone listening to, to, to look at this uh, right on the front page. There's some key points. And I think it's a great summary. Here we go. Uh, Clinical relevance concerning risks of serotonin toxicity with serotonergic psychedelics in combination with other psychotropics is increasing due to positive evidence for role of MDMA and psilocybin in treating mental illness. Okay, so they're saying these drugs are becoming more popular. How do they interact with other serotonergics? Okay, that's a great question. Second point serotonin releasing agents, their primary example is MDMA, as Sarah explained to us, with monoamine oxidase inhibitors, MAOIs, can precipitate serotonin toxicity. While use of serotonin releasing agents with serotonin specific reuptake inhibitors, tend to attenuate MDMA drug effects. So, um, oh, last one. Serotonin agonists, for example, psilocybin, appear to have a lower risk for development of serotonin toxicity alone or in combination with other serotonergic agents. So I'm going to say very brief roundup and then uh, Sarah, Jahan, maybe you can edit it for me if I'm saying it incorrectly for some reason. My big takeaway from this paper was that they're highlighting that there are, like I said, a few specific instances that are especially risky. And these are situations where you have serotonin releasing agent, such as MDMA, in combination with an MAOI, that these two things, as Sarah explained, are going to cause there to be an excess of serotonin versus um, in cases where We've talked about this a lot where someone is taking an SSRI or an MAOI and they're using uh, a serotonin agonist uh, such as psilocybin, LSD, DMT. The risk is lower. Would you guys agree with that as kind of the general roundup?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think they, I would, I would agree with that conclusion. Like, especially with their, their statement about the dosing, if you're using lower doses, um, you know, non-maoa-maoi containing psychedelics. Um, I think that that inherently has a lower risk. It's not free of risk, but yeah, I mean, that's a, my conceptual <laughs> understanding of neuroscience.
3: Okay, so cool. So I think I think that's a crucial part. So, um, you know, folks, just for uh, the listener who is thinking about this in a more functional type way, for folks who are you know consuming serotonin-releasing agents, MDMA being a popular one, um, in combination with um, an antidepressant, you may want to look into or speak to your doctor what type of antidepressant you're taking, what effect may it have on your serotonin levels. And um, also, interestingly, of course, uh, everyone should speak to their own uh, medical provider and go through the proper channels. But interestingly, uh, uh, one of the authors on this paper has a website where they have some feedback on those type of things. So, um, you know, any listener can read this paper and can, and can check that out. So just before I pass the mic, I wanted to hit a couple other quick things that I thought were important from the paper. One is that they're highlighting, there's all kinds of serotonergic drugs and have a list here in the intro. Um, some things including like St. John's wort that you can buy as a supplement in your CVS um and there's others that aren't necessarily prescription medications or you wouldn't necessarily think as um psychedelic drugs so that's just something to think about um i also wanted to jump into a question jahan you had kind of uh, teed up for me as well about some particularly risky areas and they highlighted two in the paper one was um this specific drug which has a few um, names, but it's twenty five i n b o m e, or sometimes it's called twenty five i. I'm literally reading off the Wikipedia. Sometimes it's called n bomb, Solaris, Smiles, or Wizard. And what happens is this is an extremely strong psychedelic. It's have it's uh, known for being sold in a similar format. Uh, in the illicit market as LSD, but the, um, threshold for overdose is, um, rather delicate. So in the paper they're describing, for example, there's situations where people took, I'm literally reading this from the paper and that's the only reason I'm saying it a thousand fold dose of the recommended dose of LSD and they became comatose, but they recovered and they survived after some time. But with this particular drug, um, this NBOME or 25I NBOME, they're saying that uh, the threshold in which you experience this severe serotonin toxicity and other effects, um, but the, the threshold between an active dose and serotonin toxicity is very close to each other. And then when we're considering this thing with other medications, there's that risk. Uh, Jayhan, you would also ask me to speak to the 5MEO uh, DMT. They're reporting one death related to consumption of five MEO DMT, which, which is getting increasingly popular. I mean, I feel like I'm hear abouting, hearing about it colloquially and in the culture more and more and more all the time. And uh, uh, they're talking about how uh, pharmacologically they did these tests where they were uh, testing the activity um, at the 5-HT2A receptor and they're showing that five MEO DMT has um, I'm just reading off this 115% of the maximum activation, um, at the receptor compared to they list in here, um, DMT 16 or, uh, psilocybin 16% LSD 28% DMT 40%. So there are, um, essentially the point of me saying all these specifics about these, uh, drugs, these, these two specific substances is that. While the blanket you know thing that we talked about with MDMA and you know the blanket thing about the classic uh psychedelics that I said five minutes ago is a blanket thing when you get into some of these more niche things um which are becoming more popular on the market, more highly available as part of this psychedelics renaissance um which is happening medically and in the culture uh there may be some risk in it in for people who are interested in it, who are consuming these substances or interested to consume these substances. I think my caution would be to read papers like this, become aware of what you're taking, become aware of what is the appropriate dosing. What is a risky dosing? Become aware of what type of, if you're taking an antidepressant, what type of antidepressant is it? Um, Okay. So uh, there's so much more to talk, but but, but I'm going to get off my uh, psychedelics box for a while. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Thank you, Nigam. I dig your assessments of the article. And I did like what you said. You know, companies should read articles like these. I mean, this is almost like you could create a checklist for psychedelic therapy. And when I think of checklist, I think of GMP Dave, but, you know, and think of him going in there with a checklist. And so, you know, David, I wanted to actually ask you something about kind of related to product safety and reporting. And um, this article had an interesting statement. Um, which was psychedelic use has persisted despite a political agenda actively attempting to overstate the risks for adverse reactions. And it has been estimated that over 30 million Americans have used psychedelics in their lifetime, giving ample opportunity for adverse reactions to be detected and reported. And I wanted to think about this because I didn't know if this really held true because, you know, I've done some of my own research in this space, which, uh, you know, Sarah, you saw the the poster on the the FAIRS database. Uh, me and my colleagues, we went into, you know, we, we looked at this data comparing reporting for THC and psilocybin. And the numbers probably represent like 1%. I mean, I think some estimates are 4%. Some You know, it goes all over the place, but it's not. Even close to the total reporting of adverse events, because one, you have to know what fares is, and if if the average person doesn't even know there's a national reporting system for drugs, how is the adverse event going to get there? So, you know, I, I think I think this is a little hooey. There, I I don't think there really is an effective system for. There's no existing regulated market for commercial psychedelic products, so that there, it's not like you go to Rite Aid and you're like, oh, aspirin. Oh yeah, let me get some psilocybin with that, and there's a little warning label you know, number for you to call if you, to report an adverse event. So I, I don't know, Dave, am I, you know, just grumpy from low serotonin or am I making a stimulating point here? Um, I just kind of wanted <laughs> you to speak to the collection of adverse events and complaints and product experiences for companies. And um, do you think just having, uh, an, uh, you know, like think about like hempers CBD products are just out there um you know, is I guess I just don't feel like that's a great statement to say. We've had plenty of time to collect the adverse events related to psychedelics because they're illegal and people have been using them for a long time.
1: Well, uh, uh, thanks for Team Yep. I love and I look forward to collaborating with you guys on a checklist that I'm sure the industry would benefit from. A nice standardized checklist, could we say? Um, you know, you bring up some inter- really important points, and um, you know, looking at the adverse events database and the idea that. Was it synthesized by a trained group of chemists, uh, say with backgrounds similar to any of you folks here on the panel, uh, you know, Doctor Ward and the research lab? Uh, you know, levels of uh, you know, expertise that come that's involved. Um, what's the purity of these products? So, sure, there's probably a lot of merit to what statements are there. That yeah, there's you know, been 30 million people Americans that are estimated that have taken these products. Any adverse events, as they're classically defined. What are those related to? <clears throat> is it the actual? So I think the argument could even be that the risk is lower. Um, but at the same time, you mentioned we don't know the data. These are big hypotheses that you know, nobody that's taken these these uh, you know, street drugs, as they have essentially been, you know, illicit products to date, so they're not produced with uh, you know clear identity, purity, um, you know, and quality attributes, levels of contaminants. We don't know whether any event is related to the actual active ingredient that we believe it to be or not and then yeah who's going and being like yeah my my uh my street guy down the corner gave me this product and it interacted and i'm going to call and report it to the fda events as a potentially unsafe product like i had a, i had an, a, an adverse reaction like what do you even put into the database and then how are they going to confirm it so it's just yeah it's it's a it's a f- it's a farce to even think that that's that's a palette that, it's unfortunate. I don't know what the answer is. I'd like to say there's an easy answer, but um, I commend. I think you had mentioned or Nigam had earlier, walking through that the uh, one of the authors does have a a portal and a way to report information. And of course, every you know, there's a study design that goes into all that and how the questions are asked. And and of course, who knows about it and who's taking the time to to collect that data and, and review it. So, um, and there's similarities you mentioned. THC, Delta 9, Delta 8, you know, there's a, I know you've done quite a bit of work looking at the FARS database and, you know, identifying where the Delta 8 uh, pops up there. But again, the ability to report that information and whether it's actually Delta 8 THC, um, most studies recognize that it's not because it's the, the lack of the pure purity in the process that um, creates these other uh, analytes such as Delta 9, of course, that it's really what's happening. So that's that's my thoughts and i've just enjoyed listening to you guys because i learned a lot today this has been a really good dive into this uh complex science
0: yep well thank you dave i really um i like that comment about like you know companies have to start collecting the data we don't know what the data is they have to be involved in that and i think that that you know complaint and reporting that's all part of I think GMP. Something goes wrong. You have to kind of track it down. Make sure it's not the product. Is it impurity? Is it just a one of the low risk things that occurred? I agree. And so, um, while we are getting low on HLI time, I want to go around the room uh, once more to get any follow ups. Um, you know, uh, Sarah, we could we could start with you if you have any follow up questions. Do you disagree with everything Nigam and David said, or is do the, does it?
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I I, you know, I love learning the different perspectives, right? Because we, we all, you know, are, study cannabis and hopefully psychedelics, but, you know, from a, such a different angle. So it's really interesting. But one quick thing I wanted to point out, I'm not going to try to make any ties to the paper with what I'm going to say, because then I'll talk too long. Um, <laughs> but Something else that came out this week about serotonin, if folks are interested in antidepressants and psychedelics for the treatment of depression, I uh, highly recommend that people look at this um, new uh, meta-analysis that was just published by researchers out of the University College London, um, and and we can post it in the show notes, I hope. Um discussing whether or not SSRIs are effective at treating depression and whether serotonin is involved in depression um, and whether this whole chemical imbalance theory of depression that has been around with us for decades really holds water. Um, And this article, um, I think, points out some very fascinating reasons to, um, to be skeptical of that. So something that I think People who are interested in this paper that we just talked about might also be interested in checking out.
0: So are you saying that the stimulation of the serotonin system might just be an hallucination? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I and guess maybe one the- big placebo effect. <laughs> effect. <you> know, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you know, that would be amazing. Um, but yeah, I've heard about this black box approach, people say, to the brain and, and the work with um, antidepressants. And yeah, but I think that's the nature of science. We collect data, we think one thing, we act on that model until we get enough data to change it. And I think, uh, I, I like that you cited a journal and not just according to my internet research. So that, <laughs> I think that that's, and that I, I love seeing things like that in science. When things change because of new data, new analyses, new perspectives that's how we know science is working it's not like here's the stone tablet from the first phd and we know everything on here is true fire is the shape of a triangle you know or whatever um the ionians thought about molecules anyway um i don't know nigam and david any final thoughts about the article or the show today
3: um i'm kind of conflicted but i'm just going to toss this in here uh, cuz it relates to what sarah said that One other point, um, they're making in the article is, uh, they're saying that I'm just going to read this quote in published clinical trials of MDMA or psilocybin for treating mental disorders. No serious drug related adverse events have occurred. These trials, however, have deliberately excluded concurrent use of other serotonergic medications. But this is primarily to optimize the experimental conditions for randomized controlled trials as opposed to safety concerns for serotonin toxicity. It is also important to recognize that poison control data or medical literature may not capture all fatalities or severe adverse outcomes. So the reason I wanted to read that is because it's just like Sarah's saying, you know, we have this kind of societal belief, this thing, you know, millions of uh prescriptions written and millions or billions of pills dispensed and all of this and now here's this research saying did it matter did it work is that even the right approach so you know i think sometimes we can we can learn from what happened previously and i just wanted to read that statement because while a lot of the research around psychedelics is is awesome and and it's uh insightful and it's interesting um I am so curious for bringing it closer and closer and closer to the real world application where you have millions of people utilizing serotonergics, be that um, prescription, be that, like I said, St. John's wort, you can just buy as a supplement and, and it can be a pretty strong serotonergic, in, depending on the dose. Right. So, um, and then back to what you and Dave uh, were speaking about this thing about adverse events they're not all reported like sarah was saying um serotonin syndrome or serotonin toxicity can be mild um so those don't all get reported to the database those don't all get called into uh you know um poison control and this and that so anyways um someone else say something uh a little more uh, so <laughs> I, I, someone I, say I something a little you, more Digum. positive yeah. but i just wanted to toss that in at the end cuz i i i think it matters you know I think I think it does, and I mean we can look to any
0: substance and talk about underreporting. It's just a matter of the degree. Like if imagine if every time someone had a hangover from using alcohol, they reported it to a national database. Alcohol would look really bad. Yeah, that's a good. But some good people like they're not, They're like not even going to use their computer because the bright light hurts them. <laughs> like, oh, I'm not going to report it this time. Um, so again, those are that could be considered an adverse event from a drug, and so I think we have to think about what's worth reporting as well um, in these databases. But yeah, I think that the, I think the, the 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 themes I think I keep hearing are you know creating um, this ways of understanding risk prediction, um, developing. Different applications with this information, and, and thinking about how this information will affect policy. How could it affect psychedelic treatment centers, and even the nature of you know the industry? Is people aren't just going to want to make uh, you know psilocybin only? I think we're going to see it like in the cannabinoid space. We're like, I want to take some psilocybin, boil it in some acid, maybe I just put it in some vinegar, make I, a new drug. I think you know, <laughs> and <laughs> then uh,
3: <laughs> you, Jay, I'm sorry, sorry to jump back in. You, you so that was awesome. You, you're so awesome at. Um, Making heavy <laughs> topics light at the right moment, and I love it. Uh, but one one of the the re- I,
0: I don't know why I always do kind of like a bad Southern accent whenever I want to talk about someone making drugs. So I apologize for that. It's a weakness in my uh, my act.
3: <laughs> well, you, we you know we we've, we've got time to to work on that. But the one thing I wanted to say, just to like I think draw it to like uh, give myself some closure for the episode and for my comments, is the reason I'm saying everything I've said. And I think the reason these two pharmacists publish this paper is because, in my mind, in the end, it's about the patients. It's not about some individual company and their NCE. It's not about some individual protocol that you know someone is patenting. It's not about one uh, you know policy or or substance or situation. To me, it's about the patients. And the people who are going to rely on the medical system and the professionals to say, this is a medicine that has risk X and anticipated outcome y. And we should understand that to the fullest possible, and we should help patients have the smoothest journey possible. so so that that I think that's my cap. I think that's a nice cap.
0: yeah, I, I really like that, Nick. and I hope uh, you know we, see this continue to evolve in the psychedelic treatment centers um and then it's like you know i mean i think this i've heard these stories about people who like get administered ketamine or something the guy goes across the street to get a cup of coffee and comes back and like someone's on the floor (laughs) so yeah i agree completely with you we have to like talk about the patient perspective and i think every every aspect of this i think it's so important all right, everyone. I have to say, it is so much better having four brains than one to digest this information. So I want to thank David, Sarah Nigam. Always a pleasure to get together with you. It's been wonderful over the years to be developing and talking about uh, these, these subjects on the podcast. And listener, thank you so much for tuning in. I'd like to give a shout out to Joe Leonardo for mixing and helping us record this podcast and making it sound awesome for the listener so be sure to check out our show notes and custom artwork for each episode at howtolaunchanindustry.com